Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's Panel Beater here with Radiotherapy and joining me by Skype is erstwhile colleague Dr Neo. Good morning. Good morning. Wonderful to see you. It's we- wonderful to see you. Uh, uh, you know, it's the benefit of radio that they, uh, the audience <laughs> of Melbourne doesn't have to see our faces. But yeah. there's been a big change in the studio that um, won't come through the mics. Uh, panel beater normally has quite a big, big bushy beard. And I, I logged on to Skype this morning and saw a whole new man. <laughs> A beardless, young-faced. Yeah, yeah. The times, the times they are changing. The next bit you're supposed to say is, "Geez, it makes you look like you're like 17." It does. It does. Um, but I, I'm quite, I'm quite concerned. Is this a, a lockdown, uh, <laughs> a lockdown change? Well, well, the Ned Kelly version of it was the was the lockdown project of 2020, um, <laughs> and then it just carried on and. Um, and uh, no, it was time to go. It was time to go. Things have got to change. Go. Lockdown six hits hard. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, uh, we missed you last month. Can you bring us up to speed on how your uh, hospital life's going? You were yeah, you were deep in it last month. Deep in it. Deep in those weekend those weekend shifts. Um, but you know, it's around this time of year that um, a lot of the the junior doctors around the state will be actually applying for new jobs. So I've been in the I've been busy uh, uh, applying for different jobs around different hospitals, and it's most for most junior doctors you have a yearly contract, mm-hmm. um, which surprises a lot of people actually. Yeah. Um, but well, you know, I think it's just part of the job where we we constantly move around and constantly uh, change our specialties to to get some training in. What's the uh, What's the job market like for you guys? Oh, look, it's. We're, we're quite lucky in that we will always have a job somewhere in the state. Mm-hmm. There's always there's always demand for for junior doctors and there will always be a job somewhere. It may not be in the specialty of choice or in the hospital of choice, but there's always a job. Um, and um, are you confident you're going to get – you say there's always a job, but it, then it just boils down to getting the one you want. Are you uh, yes, sitting pretty? Exactly. Uh, I, I'm very lucky in that my hospital is already like um, – has uh, given out a few jobs early, which has been nice, um, and that's one that uh, something that happens quite often with a lot of a lot of the hospitals giving um, internal contracts versus external contracts. It's all all a bit of a game, but um, you know it's it's quite a um, quite a stressful time of year, as I as I'm sure uh, it is for other spe- other areas of the job market. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Um, we also, uh, it's a sign of the times and uh, we can kind of set our clock to it. Uh, Dr. Sharma can't be with us today. He was a, he was a 11th hour withdrawal again. And um, as with the late withdrawal last time, it's, uh, it's all about covering um, needs at the front line. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, with um, a lot of people getting, you know, either tier two or tier one uh, lockdown and quarantine, it's... Um, it is quite hard to fill those spots, especially when there's not a lot of give in the system. Yeah. Um, and I know that in particularly in Dr. Sharma's area, it, it's even less give. Um, so people have to pick up the slack. Yep. And uh, what a good man to do it. 
Hey, uh, we've got a uh, chock-a-block show oh, coming up shortly. Show. Coming up shortly, we've got uh, Dr. Joanne Trippers from University of Melbourne. She's going to talk to us about a really interesting connection between artificial intelligence and uh, the potential it offers us um, to deal with um, a whole range of uh, medical uh, healthcare services. Um, in particular, we might look at um, mental health. But uh, given the nature of her work, she also picks up some of the uh, um, the caveats that we might need to keep in mind um, with the use of that uh, that uh, technology. And of course, thinking about it, we, we've spoken about telehealth multiple times on on radiotherapy. We've talked about apps and things like that many many times. When we're talking about artificial intelligence, we're talking about machine learning, and that takes us into a whole new whole new world. Do you use Siri or Alexa or Google Home or anything like that? Um, I, I occasionally use my AI uh, partners, um, often to tell me the weather when I can't be bothered to look it up. <laughs> Just screaming that, scream at the house, "Hey Google!" Um, but I, I haven't picked them up as much as a lot of other people. Have you, Dr. Sharma loves his voice to text with Siri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you um, have you come across AI in your work yet? No, no, I haven't. Um, I know that there's a lot of um, a lot of discussion around uh, AI and the role it will take in the medical workforce, and yeah. there's a lot of uh, up and coming apps and up and coming systems trying to uh, innovatively solve medical problems. Yeah. So, such as radiology, I know is a big one where right. there, there's a lot of AI systems being being designed to kind of read your CT scan or read your X-ray and pick out a diagnosis. Yep. Um, how good they're getting, I'm not actually too sure, but it'll be interesting Interesting to talk about that today. For sure, for sure. And then we've got uh, Dr. Mick Crieti coming on to talk us about uh, perhaps a potentially quite a disturbing uh, story and uh, people might be alert to a couple of campaigns that are going around, um, hashtag raise the age, talking about mm -hmm. um, juvenile incarceration. You know a little bit about that. Yeah, it's um, one that I'm you know, quite interested in and is quite quite shocking at how when you put into context that a ten year old child in, in Australia can be sent to sent to prison, um, if a lot of the audience think about their ten year old child at home, it would be it it'd be beyond belief that they could be sent to jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the disturbing aspect of you know the well the the article that caught our attention was headlined um young enough Old was it old enough to be incarcerated? No, but not old enough to uh, start a Facebook page or get a Facebook yeah. account. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Freddy will give us a bit of a rundown on that today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to that very, very shortly. Uh, we're going to um, uh, play a couple of uh, station announcements, and then we'll be back with uh, Dr. Joanne Trippis talking artificial intelligence and uh, mental health and a whole lot more to boot. You're on Radiotherapy with myself, Panel Beater, and Dr. Neo. We'll be back very, very shortly. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Joining us via Skype is Dr Joanne Trippis. Dr Trippis is the Doreen Thomas Postdoctoral Fellow School of Computing and Information Systems, Faculty of Engineering and Info Technology at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Dr Trippis. 
Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, wonderful to have you. Really looking forward to our conversation. Um, look, your uh, your article um, uh, talking about. Um, uh, Siri and uh, well, it's headlined, uh, Hey Siri, how's my mental health really caught our eye? And we're looking forward to finding out a whole lot about um, conversational systems. Before we go into any of the details, can you just uh, profile conversational systems for us so we know what we're talking about off the bat? Yes, absolutely. So um, conversational systems, you can think of these systems like Siri and Google Now. Um, and you can ask these systems uh, a question like, for example, what's the highest point in Victoria? And these systems then will, um, you know, give you an answer via voice um, or sometimes on the screen. So it really is harnessing that, you know, that human speech component so we can interact with complicated systems instead of using a mouse and a, and a uh, keyboard and so on. And, and, and where are we – well, look, let's uh, just step back a bit. How long have, have these sorts of systems been um, around? I'm aware of a, uh, a really interesting um, piece of programming from I think it was the late 60s at the very early years of, uh, of computing called Eliza. Would, would we – maybe if you know about that, you can talk about it and can we consider that the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. We, well, it's this, this whole conversational revolution, right? And we often think, as you said, that that's a, a very recent thing. Um, however, if we look back uh, indeed to the 60s, uh, Professor um, Joseph Weizenbaum um, actually created this first system called ELISA. And um, the idea was that... Um, it was trying to imitate the interaction between a patient and a therapist. And you could type something uh, in the system and then the system would give you some, some vague um, kind of responses. So that was really the, the first conversational system. And what was interesting is that it actually had a, a health component. So they were interested in, in uh, chatting with, with, a, with a, a therapist. Um, and, and of course, being so early on, you're, you're talking about tapping into the machine and then the machine responding. And the, I think the, from memory, the interesting result of that um, was that the machine and the patient, quote unquote, the patient, actually developed a rapport. Yeah, absolutely. And so that, that's the whole, you know, goal, the aim of these, these systems is that in, you interact with each other, right? And, and that you disclose information um, as you said, develop a rapport, have what we uh, refer to as grounding. You really start to understand um, the, the relationship between the two. And so it, it, it's still available. The program, if you search for it online, you'll be able to uh, go and have a chat with Eliza. And, you know, you, you'll see that it's very limited at the time and that we've come a very uh, long way, not just typing, but now you can speak to these systems and so on. So there's a lot more components and technology involved in these um, new systems that we have. Right. So what is what are the fundamental big changes uh, since something of those early days to where we find ourselves now? Yeah, great question. Oh, well, it's it's been an enormous change from um, what everyone probably heard of as machine learning, 
um, and we learn from like heaps of data, from big data, that we see some patterns and we try to imitate that. Um, natural language, uh, we understand now a lot more um, on how that works. Our computers are even more powerful um, the ones are even our smartphones are even more powerful than the computers they took to the first moon landing. So it's all this computing um, has really evolved, and, and all of these components can now, you know, we, we've put a lot of effort into this, and, and now we understand a lot more what these can do and, and um, use that to really communicate with these systems. Yeah, let's let's start talking about what they can do. So, um, Dr. Neo and myself were being a bit flippant at the front end, just thinking about uh, Siri and Google Home telling us the weather, or maybe even going to the extent of giving us directions to somewhere. But uh, when we start talking about artificial intelligence in the healthcare system, all sorts of things start to look possible. Where can we begin with that? Oh, now, now you you touch on a really big, big, big uh, section of healthcare and and and, and um, technology in general. If you think about uh, you know anything that we use, even a stethoscope, a normal stethoscope is a normal normal piece of of technology, right? Um, and look. I'm I'm not fully in the position to to go into the health um, section too much because I'm I'm not a medical doctor, um, but you know we we try to create these systems that can actually help um, um, medical professionals to um, make decisions. So sometimes um, you know the medical professionals they are really really highly trained, but may oversee some some aspects where a machine can maybe say, oh, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? And just help uh, the human um, to make these decisions. So, Dr. Trippis, where do you envision these these systems being used? Do you envision them as part of the, the triage uh, desk in an ED department where you walk up and tell the triage nurse a couple of your symptoms and they'll type it into a system and and it'll be a diagnosis, or do you see this as more of a longer-term thing in GPs and um, or assisting with with psychiatrists or spe- medical specialists? Look, ideally, in the future, right? Uh, these these systems will um, help the decision making. Uh, they won't. You know, a lot of people are afraid that these systems are going to take over and make the decisions. Uh, we all know that that human fear, but I, I'd say, look, for now, really, we, we want them to, to help the health professionals. We, we have not enough people in health. So if we can, uh, for example, what you said in the, the triaging, um, even there, if we if these systems can you know, note down the addresses or search for, for patient records, Really simple things already make a huge difference for people on the floor um, that that can yeah help them in in many different ways. One area that I've, um, I'm aware that you've uh, looked at is how these sorts of systems can help um, patients, for example, who've got visual impairments or dyslexia uh, or limited literacy. Can you talk to that for a moment? Yeah, absolutely. So if you even think about the the whole global population, we've got so many people that um, have no 
formal education cannot read. Um, and if that means that they can actually talk to these systems um, and tell them, oh, you know, I've got a cough and I've got some kind of fever, and then, uh, you know, the system can help them to, to go uh, to um, a medical professional, even that is, is a huge shift in, in how we can actually look after people's health. At the programming end of it, it just occurs to me, if, if it's going to start giving advice, in a sense, then it's, that advice is going to vary, not obviously just by the individual, but also by the territory and the regulatory context in which it's being offered, right, in terms of accessing... Um, pharmaceuticals, you know, in different territories, some things are over the counter, some things are behind counter, um, etc. What sort of challenges does that present, this uh, artificial intelligence? Yeah, great, great question. And that's that's part of the problem, right? Um, the systems um, can be accessed wherever all around the globe, um, but then the local areas have different uh, restrictions and so on. So we need to be really, really careful. And, and, and that's why a lot of um, researchers are now really starting to work with many different departments, really trying to understand these problems. Um, so we don't give just advice. That's not what we want to do. Um, and it might be the wrong advice. We really want to target, um, okay, this system will be able to help with, with um, a very specific um, problem um, and and as I said it, it means that we need to think in a, a much broader scope of what people need uh, from these systems and, and also the medical professionals if they're going to use these systems they need to be trained properly to use them too. I guess one of the, the things that comes to my mind with this topic similar to how uh, AI and and um, self-driving cars are becoming a big hot topic issue in that if something goes wrong, who is to blame? You know, where where do we assign the blame? Is it going to be the medical professionals that are using the systems? Is it going to be the systems, the system designers? You know, what happens if a, if a if a patient has an adverse outcome from one of these systems? Absolutely, and and look, I'm I'm again I'm I'm not in the right position to answer that question, but I. I can only say that we are really working interdisciplinary to try to understand this this problem. Um, similarly, with well, what what do you do with all this data, right? Um, we can have a lot of data. We need to store it safely. We need to access it safely. And it's such a huge um, effort that obviously it's going to take a while in order to have all of these systems uh, widely available uh, for everyone. So on that point, I'll go to you, Dr. Neo. I'd actually put the question to you. What's it going to take, do you think, for you, you know, personalise it if you like, for you to be convinced that you can trust the system? I That's a really good question. I, I, I think it would take quite a lot. You know, I... Um, when I'm thinking about, say, a, a machine that picks a diagnosis for you, you know, you're like we we have a similar system that happens in ED, for example, where a patient will come with a with an initial diagnosis either from the the paramedics or from the triage team, and they'll say, you know, it looks like it could be this, um, and 
I think I'm still suspicious. You know, I always go in there and and try and put that out out of my mind and make up my own my own um, decision, which I think kind of defeats the points of this whole system. But I think that as it became more and more ingrained into our medical education and into our medical system, it might take a bit of the might take the pressure off, and you might get used to it. Mm. But currently, I think I'd be. Suspicious. You're on Radiotherapy with myself, panel beta, and Dr. Neo, and we're talking to um, Dr. Joanne Trippers from the University of Melbourne about artificial intelligence and uh, healthcare services. Picking up uh, what you're saying there, Dr. Neo, my mind immediately went looking for an equivalency of some sort, and it goes to um, pilots and pilots trusting the instrumentation in the cockpit. And as a as a passenger, or in this context, as a patient. I guess I'm in a position to decide, do I trust the system, you know, the cockpit, <laughs> or do I trust the pilot? Do I trust the system or do I trust the doctor? We we seem to be pretty comfortable with uh, pilots in 747s uh, trusting the system. And it's, it's not to say that, that the system is broken or the system is, um, the system is not necessary. It's more to saying that I think currently – we rely so much on our own intuition, our own training, and our own education that it'll be, be such a huge cultural shift, <laughs> particularly for a lot of the older doctors and the older medical professionals who have been doing, you know, doing things without um, without a lot of technology for years. Um, so I it, like I'm fascinated to see how it how it gets rolled out, and I'm I know for a fact that it's going to be almost an unstoppable force. Like it's mm. going to be in our in our healthcare system eventually i guess it just depends how quickly it comes comes through dr trippers so obviously and you've you've mentioned that your work is interdisciplinary so you're engaging a lot with the medical profession no doubt um where are the pressure points in this regard i i think what you were already saying it's it's the trust uh the trust the ethics um of these systems is, is a is a massive point, right? We we can as in the discipline, it's a real question every time again. How do we do this? How do we do this safely? Um, and and that's why you need so many people to think about it because, you know, as as you already mentioned, medical. If you think about um, pilots, for example, we have been working with pilots on and how they use, how they envision to use these systems in the future in in the cockpit. And you know, one thing that they say is, well, trust. And how do you trust the system? But what's the um, the relationship within that that cockpit when they're flying hmm. in very special environments? Like, let's say something is going wrong. How much are you going to take over from that system? Yeah. Um, you're still responsible for how many passengers are on your plane. Um, so these are, you know, highly trained people and highly well-educated um, pilots. Same with medical professionals. That if we can just even, you know, take a small thing that might you know, allow them to have a little bit more capacity, cognitive capacity at a particular difficult moment, Yeah, maybe it's worth it um, to really investigate that. Yeah. I, I was just thinking, I, I wonder, 
as with a lot of things medical, I reckon insurance companies are going to have a lot to say about this and uh, whether they're going to cover the doctor's decision or the um, or the system's decision, um, mm. more, more inclined or not. Hey, we're fast uh, getting through some time here. There's a couple of systems, Dr. Trippis, that I'm um, aware of that you've spoken about, which is um, Wobot that deals with... Um, uh, mental health support and uh, Nestor, which deals with encouraging people's behaviour change and so on. Can you talk to those two those two systems? Yeah, I, I, look, these are systems that are um, one is um, being researched and developed by um, a European project, so Nestor, um, and they are interested in um, coaching people through healthy ageing, um, so really supporting people. Um, and measuring um, how happy they are, um, their health status, and really encouraging people to be physically active, uh, eat healthily. Um, and, and, you know, so it's, it's real support, um, but also trying to connect, uh, keep people connected with each other because we know that it's important. How, how do they actually do that? This is a conversation between the person and a device? Yes, absolutely. So um, it's it's a it's a program. For example, you can have it on your phone, and you kind of talk uh, to the system. You can log your your habits and so on, and, and then it can say, "Oh, look, it seems that you've been eating X um, a lot lately. Maybe you can, you know, eat some more." <laughs> says, of "Do you really need that extra piece of cake?" Yes, a little bit less cake and, and do some more more walks outside. For <laughs> right. I, I, yeah, I can imagine some people might take affront to that uh, in some ways, and other people are going to jump at it. You know, if you, yeah, yeah, especially with wearable devices and things like that around you. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're, we are indeed coming uh, towards time. Perhaps the one last area we need to touch on is, as we always do with tech in in medicine and health, is privacy. And how how are, how's the designing and the and the systems programming addressing issues of health information and privacy? Yeah, great question, and, and it's the burning question for everyone, right? Um, and I'm like, we have specialists that 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 look into this particular area. Um, so I'm not uh, a specialist, but I can just say that it's it is really important, and it's a lot of research goes into that and what what are the boundaries um for example i have been working on a project where we have um very sensitive medical data and that is very very contained as to who can access this where can you access this how can you access this so we as researchers really understand how um important it is to be really careful with this data and um, the only thing is that we we understand this and we hope that when people um, create their own um, little systems, because people can do that, that when you are a consumer of these products, always make sure that you double check um, what, what the privacy um, implications are, how they hold your data, um, what they can do with your data and so on. Because it's just, you know... I'd like people to be informed that they do have a choice um, with these things, whether they use these systems or not. So it's definitely worth checking um, all of that. 
That's been really wonderful, uh, Dr. Trippers. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to say our time's gone so fast, but we've covered a lot of ground. Um, I really appreciate your time with us on Radiotherapy this morning. Well, thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. Thanks again. We've been speaking with uh, Dr. Joanne Trippis from the University of Melbourne talking about all things AI and uh, health services and a uh, quite a... Uh, I don't know what to say, Dr. Neo. There's a nervousness about the future and, uh, and that, and, I, and I'm not the professional. You're the one that's going to be uh, uh, confronted uh, most, I imagine. I'd call it trepidation. Um, you know, I'm a bit, a bit nervous but excited to see where it comes. I, I think that it's natural to be a bit hesitant but about all of these systems and all of this new technology, but... I imagine that people were also nervous about a lot of the, say, electronic electronic medical records that were being rolled yeah. out not too long ago, and they've completely revolutionised our healthcare system. So we shall we'll see. see. Watch this space. Watch this space. I suspect it's, it's going to move very, very quickly. It's going to get a momentum. You're on Radiotherapy Triple R with myself, Panel Beta, and Dr. Neo. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Joining us today is Dr Mick Creaty, who is a paediatrician and adolescent physician, a senior fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians, and is the college's spokesperson on raising the minimum age of criminal responsibility. Mick was the head of the medical services in the Parkville Youth Justice Precinct between 2012 and 2014. In 2016, he was summoned to provide evidence to the Royal Commission into the protection and detention of children in the Northern Territory regarding the standards of healthcare for children in detention. Mick has, for the last seven years, worked two days a week as a paediatrician at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service in Fitzroy. Many of the children he sees there are involved in the child protection and or the youth justice systems. Mick has, for the last 20 years, also worked as an adolescent physician in the Department of Adolescent Medicine at the Royal Children's Hospital. Dr. Kruge is joining us today to discuss the Raise the Age campaign, which is focused on raising the age of criminal responsibility is the age criminal charges can be placed in someone from where it currently stands across Australia at 10 years old. Thank you for joining us, Mick. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Neo. That's an embarrassingly long introduction, but I'm <laughs> glad to be on board and thank you for supporting the campaign. Very well-deserved introduction, I think. Um, so before we get into the nitty-gritty of this, I think it would be good to set some context. So, Dr. Creedy, can you tell us a little bit about your typical 10-year-old? Yeah, look, up. Um, just in terms of context, there's about <clears throat> 600 children under the age of, uh, between the age of 10 and 14 who are locked up in prison-like facilities in, across Australia each year, and about 60 to 70% of those children who are locked up are Aboriginal. Look, a, a 10-year-old, um, he's in grade four. Typically, um, they're too young for Facebook, but old enough to be locked up in a prison. 
And, you know, just to get some idea of how small these children are, the Royal Children's Hospital now recommends car booster seats to the height of 145 centimetres. Now, a 10-year-old's on average is height is 135 centimetres. So we've been pushing the Attorneys General rather facetiously that if they can't raise the age, at least the police could take them to jail in child seats as approved by the Children's Hospital. Um, that, so not old enough to old enough to go to prison, but not old enough to sit in the front seat without a booster seat. That's a pretty stark uh, juxtaposition. Um, and I guess what I'm interested here in here is where does Australia sit compared to other countries in terms of age? Of yeah, look, yeah, we're at the really low end. Um, the United Nations rights to child recommends a minimum age be 14, if not 16. So we're well out of step with um, other countries. In the European Union, the average or median minimum age of criminal responsibility is 14, and the sky has not fallen down there. We never raised the age. So we are well under international standards and well below international standards. And in fact, there was a human rights um, commission or meeting at the UN earlier this year where 30 countries actually um, recommended or implored, implored Australia to raise the age to at least 14. So we, we are, um, there's a lot of pressure on us internationally to raise the age. And what is the case for treating children differently when it comes to criminal offences? But why should we be apportioning responsibility and punishment to children in a way that is different to how we treat adults, for example? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because um, we know, you know the neuroscience would show, and if you've got um, young adult um, children even, that the human brain is not fully developed until the age of 25. And the last bits of the brain to develop are the prefrontal cortex, which are responsible for you know, being able to plan your actions and um, seeing the consequences of your actions and impulse control. And that, even myself as, as an adult has not perfect impulse control. Otherwise, they wouldn't be sticking chocolates next to the cash registers in the supermarket. So I go, I go into the supermarket not planning to buy the chocolates, but somehow they end up in my trolley, even though I know they're bad for me. So a lot of these children are being um, incarcerated for very impulsive offences or, or actions, sorry. Um, so a, a young child... 10, 11, maybe on the side of the road. His mates have stolen the car. Um, they say to him, no, jump in the car or we'll leave you on the side of the road. So without actually thinking through the consequences of those actions, he'll get in the car. And because the car's been stolen, is now an accessory to a crime and can be charged. So we're seeing a lot of kids locked up for behaviours which bring them in context with the police, which we don't think are um, criminal behaviours, but behaviours which are understandable by their neurodevelopment and immaturity. And, and on top of that, we, we now have a really good profile of the kids we are locking up. Um, there was a survey out of Western... Uh, study out of Western Australia published in the BMJ of around 100 children in prison, and 90% of them had neurocognitive deficits such as FASD, intellectual disability, um, massive trauma histories, child protection involvement. So we are now punishing children for behaviours which we completely understand now as a response, uh, are directly attributable to disability or neurocognitive 
immaturity. So we're punishing normal childhood behaviours in a criminal sense rather than supporting them with the therapeutic options which we have available to us. That that raises quite an interesting point because if these a lot of these adolescents in the criminal justice system do have an underlying neurocognitive deficit, which means that they're essentially functioning below their biological age, is it appropriate that we're treating people like they're adults, even if they can't fully understand the ramifications of their decisions? Absolutely not, and that's the basis of our argument. Now, we have a choice whether we criminalise these children or offer them the, the diagnostic support, care, treatment, re-engagement with school that we know works. You know, I have um, a number of patients who may be 10, 11, who've got onto the school roof with a, and have a knife, so they could be charged with trespassing, vandalism. They could be charged, but I, my first thought as a health practitioner is, hey, I don't want to charge this kid. I want to get a better understanding of this kid, get him re-engaged with school if he's disengaged, maybe get a neuropsych assessment, a cognitive assessment, and where the deficits are, we support them. So putting a kid in prison and removing him from those supports actually perpetuates the behaviour. We know that the younger a child gets into the justice system, the more likely he is to stay in the justice system and transition to the adult system. So for a health professional's perspective, it's completely inappropriate to criminalised behaviour like that at sentencing down the wrong trajectory, a trajectory that um, <coughs> entrenches criminals, criminal behaviour often rather than uh, what you or I would do if we saw them in a therapeutic situation is actually get a better understanding of the kid and link them with the supports he needs. Mm. I guess that's now, a really important the- point that one of the basis of our criminal justice, justice system is that, yes, it's punitive, but it's also meant to be corrective. And yeah, well, it sounds uh, like... Yeah. This is not meeting that second point. Oh, absolutely not. Now, from my experience in justice, which was a few years ago, um, definitely not corrective. It's, um, it's, no, there is a perception in the community that um, incarceration is a punishment, but we do know that about 80% of the youth justice budget goes towards locking kids up, not towards the therapeutic interventions. And so there's a real mismatch between what's needed and what's actually funded. Um, so it's a bit of chicken and egg. If we raise the age, then these kids couldn't be charged in the first place and it may force the government to invest in more cost-effective options, um, treatment, tra- um, support, therapeutic interventions, diversion. Um, but the government's now saying, well, we need those things in place before we'll raise the age. So we're a little bit of loggerheads with the government at the moment about raising the age. Some... Um, some jurisdictions, such as the ACT, have committed to raise the age to 14, but yet to enact it. But um, we've got not much traction with the other state jurisdictions. Dr. Curdy, the uh, conversation so far points to you know some really obvious um, uh, reasons why there should be the change. So, what's the pushback? What is the resistance? Is it is it coming from? Um, the victim lobby groups, I guess, for want of a better word, or is it? Is there political pressure points here? Oh, look, there's definitely political pressure, and it's interesting. Oh, I find this really poignant that we're in the middle of lockdown and discussing locking kids up, um, and in the middle of lockdown, the government's saying we're listening to the health advice. Our response is based on the best health advice in our response to COVID, but they're clearly not listening to the health advice in response to locking children up. We know, we know locking children up is damaging. Um, it's, look, I think it's a political risk for um, governments to um, raise the age and to be seen to be not 
taking crime seriously. And no, there is, uh, um, when we've done our focus groups, there is a section of the community that says do the crime, do the time, mm. um, without fully understanding that children as young as 10 are... They shouldn't be considered crimes. I see them as behaviours which bring them in contact with the police. Um, so, yeah, I think public perception is important. I think, you no, know, in terms of moving forward, shows like this are fantastic in actually raising the awareness of the issue because I think most people in Australia would not understand that you can actually lock a kid up in grade four and they can be arrested, held in the police cell, strip search without his parents being present. And if we did that as health practitioners, that would be unacceptable just... Um, so I think there is a long... Campaigns are long. Um, we need... The first step is to raise awareness, like we're doing today. Um, and then I think, you know, if it matters, then the politicians... If there's enough people making it matter, the politicians may be swayed. But um, I think in this case, evidence is not going to get us over the line. I think, like you're intimating, there is um, resistance from... Uh, which um, is not completely evidence-based. Mm. What, uh, Dr. Neo, you go. Well, I think that it's really important to get an idea of once you lock up, you know, a ten-year-old who can't get in a car without a booster seat. I guess it's important to know what happens to them in prison. I imagine that when you're actually in prison, some of the basics start to fall off. You know, education and socialisation would be impacted. Do we know what the the actual true impact of imprisonment on this age group has on their development. Yes, so you're right. We we know the most pro-social influences in that transition between childhood and adulthood, the adolescent periods, are connection with community, connection with family, connection with education system, connection, positive peer experiences, um, like Ozki called Netball. And you're right, removing them from those activities and those positive influences is damaging and it's interesting we have seen lots of evidence about the damaging impact of locking children up in offshore detention and the government has accepted the medical evidence in relation to that but they've not accepted the evidence in in regards to the damage of locking children up in prisons in Australia. Um, We know mental health outcomes are worse, we know life expectancy is worse and whether that is worse, whether that's a cohort effect, obviously there's a cohort impact there. We know they're more likely to um, go to adult prisons. There's evidence that their children were more likely to go to prison themselves. So there's intergenerational um, impact. So yeah, there is a lot of damage due to incarceration and locking down. And look, the, the, the you may have seen the Dondale documentary on Four Corners and my experience in Parkville. You know, they're, they're prison-like cells, um, often as big as a car park. They might be locked down from 8pm to 8am. They might have a television room, television in their cell. Um, and, you know, it is isolating and you know, very... And, and it sets, like I said, it sets them up on a trajectory which is not a positive trajectory. And so I guess the obvious question is, what can we do differently? What alternative be? Yeah, so I think in terms of government, we can raise the age, um, which will keep kids out of prison and stop them having been charged. Um, I think the government at the same time could look at um, justice reinvestment. So instead of spending 80% of the justice um, 
budget on incarceration, they could look at programs that keep at-risk children or children who are experiencing behavioural issues in schools, keep, get them linked with um, communities, support Indigenous and marginalised um, communities to look for solutions within their own community. We can um, get these kids linked with NDIS, which is untapped. We can get them linked with paediatricians for assessment, cognitive assessment. So there's a lot we can do in in terms of how to support children who have problematic behaviour. Um, and I think that's at that macro government legal and program level. I think as individuals... Um, no, we need to keep spreading the word. And as, a health, as health professionals, which I imagine much of the audience will be, um, say, hey, this is the medical evidence or the health evidence. You're listening to us with COVID. Why aren't you listening to us with Rosie Age? I think there is a fantastic... There's a petition, online petition, raisetheage.org.au. We've got over 100,000 signatures on that, which is very powerful for us to go back to government and say, hey, this does matter, you know, public sentiment often sways government and there's another Twitter handle um, which is hashtag me at 10 and you can post your pictures of you at the age of 10 on, on just to show how young these and vulnerable these children are and how inappropriate it is it is I think look, I think we're getting some traction through media that 10 is ridiculous um, but I think the next bit is to get that out into the public to make them aware, because a lot of people just don't realise you can put a kid in prison at 10. Um, and I think once we get that groundswell, the politicians are more likely to raise the age. Um, and we'll keep chipping away. Um, Michaelia Cash is the Attorney-General at the moment. They've divulged responsibilities to the state because they're state-by-state. State. Um, um, laws are set state-by-state. State. So I think the more, at this stage, the more awareness shows like yourself can do in the public and people who are listening this, talk to your friends. You know, you may have inf people in who are members of parliament or are influential or who are judges. So speak to your friends and colleagues and sign the petition. I think at, at the individual level would be fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Creedy. We'll link all those on our social media. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Welcome back to Radio Therapy on Triple R. Uh, that was wonderful, Dr. Neo. It, yeah, it was. Um, I mean, well, disturbing, I, I, but <laughs> I all those facts, and I was still shocked. Yeah, yeah. So often um, with where science interacts with policy, there's that amazing disconnect between the evidence that's available and, and as Dr. Cody pointed out, um, you know, the, the, new, the neuroscience behind where the, the cognitive development is is clear um, and yet the system, and there's that word again, <laughs> the system says, no, we're going to do it differently. Yeah, like I, I have 10-year-old cousins and I, I couldn't imagine them sitting in a prison cell. It's just... Just beggar's belief. Beggar's belief. Hey, we're just about done. So as as is uh, our will, we, we kind of look at a headline that's caught our eye. Um, did you have something in mind, Dr. Neo? Yeah, yeah. There's been this um, really interesting headline um, recently about self-collection of cervical screening tests uh -huh. and how some medical experts are pushing for the, the government to introduce a self-collection cervical screening program, which is just... Uh, incredible idea you know there's been some pushback 
previously because there's been thoughts that it wasn't as accurate as uh, a medical professional provided cervical screening test, but recent evidence has shown that um, that not to be the case. And one of the other, the other important points is that um, apparently around 50% of women in Australia are overdue for their cervical screening test. And that's... Uh, quite a multifactorial reasoning behind that in that it's quite an arduous process to go and get your cycle screening tests it a lot of people have um, a multitude of reasons where they might not be able to get it cultural reasons past trauma embarrassment pain um, or just lack of time or even lack of awareness and I think that if we could get a um, a self-collection cervical screening test program running it would be an amazing uh leap forward you know similar to almost your your bowel cancer screening program where you get mailed out a little package every right. every few years and um you you event it stays in the drawer for a little bit you eventually get around to doing it setting it off and that's that um so it would be an amazing it? program to see getting off the ground did I miss it? What did you say the status of this program is at the moment? Is it in development right, it's still, or it's proposed? It's still, still in the um, the proposal status. Um, it would be good to see it getting off the ground, though. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Look, um, look how quickly the time goes. It's been um, wonderful uh, spending uh, Sunday morning with you, dear listeners, and with you, um, Dr. Nia. Hopefully we'll have Dr. Sharma um, back with us uh, next time around. Um, we just... On this yeah. uh, lockdown number six, it would be oh, yeah. important just to just to make sure that everyone's you know being kind to themselves, looking after themselves. It's not an easy thing to go through. Yeah. So I think that uh, a little bit of self awareness and just you know you, you're allowed to have a little bit of a moment. Let's have a few down days. Don't try and push yourself too hard. Just make sure that you're looking after yourself and checking in with your loved ones. Well said, Doctor Neo. Just speaking for myself, I'm finding it really tough compared to how I, I experienced it uh, uh, in 2020. And I don't think I'm alone on that. No, no, you're certainly not. And it's it's just just so awful to go through. And I think that everyone's, you know, mostly doing the right thing and it's a hard thing to get through. But, you know, just making sure that you're looking after yourself and checking in on your loved ones, I think, is all we can do. Absolutely. Yes. So, radiotherapy listeners and Triple R community, do take care of yourself. Bit of self-care. Very, very important. Thanks for joining us on Radiotherapy today. Thanks to Dr. Trippers from the University of Melbourne talking AI and um, healthcare services. Thanks to Dr. Creative talking to us at the paediatrician, talking to us about juvenile incarceration and all that goes with it. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.